Welcome to the Inside Digital Transformation Podcast. Inside Digital Transformation explores how organizations of every size and shape are using technology today to survive and thrive in the face of relentless change. If you are a business or technology leader charged with making the most of digital transformation in your organization, then this podcast is for you. And now here's your host, Alan Bernard, a technology journalist, editor, and copywriter who has been covering the intersection of business and technology for over two decades. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dan Diasio, EY's global AI consulting leader, about how to overcome the trust issues that have taken over the AI conversation. Until ChatGPT hit the scene in November of 2022, AI wasn't something most people realized, was hard at work sifting through their data, providing voice assistance on their phones, or helping business people make critical decisions that affected their daily lives. Today, all that has changed, and people are afraid. Dan, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Alan. So, uh, I mean, obviously today we're talking about AI uh, and how to cre- increase trust in it, because that seems to be one of the, I don't want to say the biggest stumbling blocks. I mean, there's some technical issues, obviously, with you know getting AI into the you know general usage, but trust is a big one, right? I mean, I, th- I think people are 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 afraid of AI in many ways, right? There's a lot of fear-mongering out there from the people who have developed this stuff, right? Uh, Elon Musk, uh, Hinton, uh, Dr. Hinton from, I think, University of Toronto was one of the godfathers of AI. So um, maybe it's warranted, maybe it's not, right? But certainly from a an adoption point of view, uh, this is an issue that's going to have to be addressed. So kind of what are your thoughts around that? What what is the, what are the drivers of mistrust in AI right now? Yeah, Alan, so thank you for having me here on your show. Um you know, you you kind of opened with the uh what what many of us call the probability of doom question. Uh you know, yeah. the existential threat question. Yep. Um you know, so I'll just address that up front and then we can move on, but I think a lot of what's driving that dialogue is not where we are with the technology today, but it's just looking at the speed in which we've innovated over the course of the last couple of years and projecting that forward. You know, the technology is very powerful as it is, and that's really been technology that's been forming over the course of the last couple of years. So if you extend that five, 10 years out, um, it's uh, it, 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 it can create a little bit of disorientation of how far the technology will go in that period, which I think is is where that dialogue is centered. Uh, we like to center the conversation much more on where the technology is today and how we can build confidence in using the AI today. So, I mean, you know, there's when we when we think of what it takes to be able to build confidence, um, you know, there's four categories of of uh you know, I put I put them in, into to different categories of issues that need to be addressed as we start to go about building confidence. Um, the one, largely a bucket, is around the trust and accuracy of AI, and in particular, uh, generative AI, um, with its uh, proclivity towards hallucinations and right. you know and, and and that sort of thing. The second area is really around uh, privacy, surveillance, and uh, security. And it's a question of can we trust that the data that we're putting into these models is uh, it, it, it stays with us, or may it go out to my competitors, or may it go out to other places? How, how government stay- agencies, right? I mean, right. I mean, that's a, that's a big one, obviously one of the biggest. Yep. The third, I'd, I'd kind of put as a bucket around fairness and bias. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, these AI systems 
are not built from the world with the principles and ethics that we wished the world would have, but instead right. are built off of what the data shows us. So there's a lot of inherent bias and and uh, concerns around how some of these algorithms work and the data that they've been trained on. And the fourth mm-hmm. bucket I would put as more the legal and regulatory issues. So any confidence program really needs to encompass how you address each of those four different buckets. So confidence is different than trust. Right. So from a business perspective, confidence is OK. That's good enough. Right. I have confidence in the in the, uh, the the answers. I have confidence that we did our due diligence. I've right. That's but that's not trust. And in the people who are going to be impacted, rank and file employees. I mean, everyone. I mean, I can't think of anyone who potentially isn't impacted uh, by the decisions that AI makes. Um, how do you cross that bridge? Right. Yeah. No, it's a great question, Alan. I mean, my perspective is uh, this latest round of AI is much more probabilistic than it is deterministic. You know, we can okay. ask a question today without changing any of the data, and it may give us a different answer today than it did yesterday. Okay. Um, trust is usually a word, you know, as we engage with many of our clients, we find that clients tend to think about trust in a binary term. Either you okay. trust it or you don't. Right. Um, doesn't really leave room for the stochastic nature or the probabilistic nature of some of these algorithms. So instead, we use the word confidence to be able to put the right procedures in place. So so we feel that we're doing everything we can to be able to drive the best outcomes from an AI perspective. Do you think that confidence is something that the guy, you know, the average person who is not a business person who is kind of subjected to uh, these algorithms kind of without their knowledge, approval, or, you know, um, I don't know what the third adjective would be. I'll find it. But, you know, without their knowledge and approval, uh, that's a big one, right? Uh, You know, to them, I don't think confidence is a word they're going to put a lot of stock in. Well, what you raise is is an interesting point, Alan, about where and how you use artificial intelligence. Um, What we have spent a lot of time doing with our clients part of our responsible AI program is that organizations need to set up um, an AI, a set of AI principles that they will use to be able to describe when, how, and where they will use artificial intelligence. And from that, they often create policies and then procedures. Mm-hmm. One of those policies that, that we find uh, or, or principles is, uh, is often around transparency. You know, being clear about when we're using artificial intelligence, uh, you know, to be able to make decisions. And uh, we find that that's a really common one that our clients are using it. I could say for us at EY, uh, we think it's really critical that our professionals are part of the AI process, that AI is not happening to them and trying to reduce their work. But instead, mm-hmm. we think about it augmented intelligence instead right. of artificial intelligence, right. how we can help them do their work better, faster. Uh, Etc. So, so they're very much part of the process, and 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 as being part of the process, we are upscaling all of our four hundred thousand people to know when and how AI works and where it will be used. So, these things are not happening behind the scenes without them being aware. Right. Transparency is good. Um, you're up against an attention deficit disorder in the general population, right? Uh, a saturation of information uh, that you know the ability to um, dig into the intricacies that transparency demands, 
Uh, I think that's a high bar for most people, right? Um, so that's kind of where, you know, so some of the things that I had on my list uh, of why people don't trust it is the hallucinations, right, are a big one. They get a lot of headlines. The bias gets a lot of headlines. Uh, it's too new. You know, it's coming too fast. Uh, you know, the world's moving. You know, this has been the case since the 70s. You know, I'm old enough to remember um, well, information overload as a term, right? Um, and, and it's scary. They've Everyone's seen the Terminator, <laughs> Right? And and these aren't necessarily, you know, some of these are good reasons, but, the, you know, um, that's kind of, and I have a feeling that even well-educated people are, are still struggling with these issues. Uh, people who are being trained, people who are in like your organization, who are educated and can understand the intricacies of these, of these systems, at least on the surface level. Um, but the average person can't. And so uh, I, I guess that's kind of where I'm going because I still see this as a much broader issue than within business itself. Yeah. I think it's an interesting question that you raise, Alan. Uh, you know, the difference, you know, if this was a year ago, you know, I might agree with you that many people hear about AI and don't necessarily participate in AI as much. It was often something that was relegated to the yeah. data science part of the organization. Yeah. But in November, along came ChatGPT and became the fastest growing yeah. application that went in everybody's hands. It was available yeah. to anybody with the connection of a who had a who had an internet connection. And while I realize as I opened that there are some concerns about where the technology will go in the future, People that have played with ChatGPT, I'm quite certain that they're not thinking that is Skynet. And that right, is, right. You know, so So a lot of it um, has to do with putting your hands and, and getting involved and being part of using the technology. And that has been democratized in a, in a wide way to everybody, not just the data scientists. There are senior partners at Ernst & Young that are investing in themselves by taking online courses to teach okay. them better about how to use AI, how to use AI responsibly, where are the applications, where are the use cases. So we often think that, you know, for us, our 400,000 people are going to get their, are going to get hands-on experience and working with artificial wow. intelligence. And this is really one of those technologies where you learn by doing. Right. Um, so, I so part of uh, part of the goal has got to be to to get your hands uh, and right. then you start so, to learn what the limitations are. So familiarity, I think, is is where you're going with a lot of this, right? So you know, um, and and I understand you're focused internally to to EY, and, and you have an amazing knowledge base, right? I mean, does anyone work at EI without a degree? I doubt yeah. it. Right. Yeah. I doubt it. But well, a lot we, of your clients, we do, we do hire people from non-traditional backgrounds without, but you, you know what I mean? You, you get, yeah. I mean, there's the high, high degree of education among the employees at, at EY, but, you know, um, but once you go outside of those walls, um, you know, for EY to use AI effectively in its business to increase its, I mean, I talked to Nicola, uh, one of the very first podcasts about how he's that, you know, you're using, um, uh, you know, uh, process twins to increase, you know, uh, business or not increase, but improve, you know, business processes. 
And, and so if your clients look at you and say, well, that's an AI thing. I, I don't want that. I don't want AI looking at my tax returns. I don't want AI involved in our consulting engagements. I don't right because they lack trust in what that AI is doing. Then that becomes a problem inside of EY. Um, that I think it's just hard to to overcome um, when someone doesn't know why they don't trust the technology. They just don't. You know what I mean? It's a feeling. And and it's a kind of a scary one because AI can do in seconds what most of people can't do in days, which is, for example, write a book or write a song or, you know, it's, it's, so there's, do you kind of follow where I'm trying to get to here? Yeah, I follow you, Alan. Um, I think based on the way that we see organizations tackling that, I mean, you're hinting at how do you how do you get over some of that distrust? Yeah. What is the process yeah. to be able to get yeah. that started? Yeah. And you know, for for big companies, I spend a lot of my time internally with EY, but my principal job is to advise some of the largest clients in the world about how they begin their journey in using artificial intelligence. So that so that is a big part of it. Um, <clears throat> and 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 as I as I mentioned, having a statement of how and where companies are going to use AI, both internally and externally, making that statement public and then adhering to that, you know, testing that against the ethics of the company and making that declaration is something that is very important. That goes a long way to building trust. The other thing that goes a long way to building trust okay. is to training people. It, it really is as simple as, as people get more hands-on experience, then they will start to learn how the systems work and some of the magic comes away right. you know it's, right. you start to understand a little bit more about how these systems uh, operate and how they how they kind of make their predictions in the future the third thing that we find is a very important important part of the uh, ingredient mix so to say is to think about it as aug I, I made this comment earlier but think about it as augmenting the workforce as yeah. opposed to eliminating the workforce. Right. And that goes a long way towards getting the organization interested and excited. And, you know, people would love to be superheroes. Most people would love to be superheroes. So now we equip them and we give them tools so they can do their job in a in a much more amplified and much more impactful way. Um, there are some, still some things that will residually risk, uh, exist outside of that. There is still a challenge with hallucinations. There is a lot that needs to be done around uh, the fairness and bias, uh, bias right. in yep. the deployment of these ethics. But setting up a program to systemically look at where AI is being used and what what we've deployed, let me back up a second, what we've deployed in, internally within EY um, and have just launched on September 12th externally is our EY.AI program of which we have something called an EY.AI confidence index. That confidence index is basically a playbook for our clients to be able to start to look at the risks that AI brings. And a lot of those risks are what drive some of that lack of trust that exists within people mm -hmm. within the organizations right. and score where and how the AI matches up against those risks. Depending on the, the tier, that it sits in, if it's a high risk, then there's a lot more procedures and a lot more work that would need to be done in order to put that into a 
production environment. So organizations can feel comfortable that they've confidently deployed it, they've looked at the risks and they are monitoring that on an ongoing basis. Sharing how that process works and how that happens and how the employees that are using the AI, um, sharing that process with them is very effective. And then as they find things that could be deviations, they can share them back with the organization that's deployed the AI. So it, it's got to be tackled as a program. This is not installing technology, plugging it in, and then hoping that it works well. It needs to be run as a program. Right. You know, I was wondering, are there any corollaries of other technologies that we kind of take for granted today that started out in a similar fashion? Um, I, I can't think of any, but maybe, maybe you can. A colleague and I were talking about what will... If AI lives up to its potential, right. what, what will the change look like? And we were looking for corollaries. And the corollary that we've come up with is maybe about 20 years old at this point. But it is when companies shifted away from running their business on mainframes and moved over into ERPs. Okay. That shift was a very dramatic shift. You don't incrementally migrate your way step by step from a mainframe to an ERP. It is eventually it becomes something that is uh, we stop operating in the in the mainframe and then we pick up the very next day working in the ERP. And as we start to really unlock the potential of AI, it will likely be that similar type of shift where we've started to reimagine the way work happens, and there is a big pivot point between those uh, between the the from and the to in that way. Okay, um, maybe maybe the corollary might be robotics um, in manufacturing, for example. Um, a lot of fear around that technology taking jobs, still rightly so. But it it never material. It hasn't. I shouldn't say never did. It hasn't materialized in the way that that the, you know, the the sky is falling. People were saying, in you know, ten years ago, right? Yeah, um, I understand your question, Alan. I mean, before before this, we had RPA, uh, robotic mm -hmm. process automation, uh, automation, right. which was not exactly uh, the robotics in the manufacturing field. Right. But there was a lot of concern that that was going to be used to eliminate jobs. And while it did eliminate some work, that redeployed resources to be able to go do more critical thinking type of activity. Right. right. So, okay. Um, and again, I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get this down to the level of the general population because that's going to where it's, I mean, it's not going to have its biggest impact there, but without the acceptance. So, for example, AI is very good at spotting cancers uh, in mammograms. I think it's 20% better. I'm not quite sure if that's the right way to express it, uh, than the average radiologist in spotting breast cancer. Uh, same with uh, throat cancer. Uh, it's much better at spotting throat cancer. But, you know, um, if you were to go to someone and say, well, the, the machine said you have throat cancer, here's what we're going to do, right? Uh, we're going to talk to another machine that's going to tell us what the therapy is going to be for you. Uh, and then I'm just going to send you down to get, you know, whatever that therapy is. As opposed to the machine told us this, what we're going to do is we're going to take another look at it. We're going to cross-reference it. We're going to go talk to a few experts, right? And and, and then we're going to decide on a course of action with you uh, that is going to best suit, you know, your uh, the, the therapy that will be best for you and the way that you need it done. That, those are two very different scenarios, right? Um, 
And it just seems that second scenario is the one that people will accept. And the first one isn't. But I think people are afraid that the first one's going to take over. I think all the studies that you've referenced, particularly in the imaging space, have found that, yes, sometimes the AI can identify cancer um, better than humans can. Usually when humans work together with AI, Mm -hmm. the outcome is even better. And Alan, that gets back to the principles. I haven't seen many organizations looking to entirely outsource care or medical decisions to to AI systems. Not yet. In almost in, in most of the instances, it is very clearly focused on augmenting the physician or augmenting the radiologist so they mm-hmm. can have better eyes or a better understanding of what the historical longitudinal medical record is for that particular patient to be able to detect detect patterns that may not um, have uh, have stood uh, may not be as easily discernible for uh, for a right. physician that is going from one patient to the next. Right. So they're usually supplemental augmented capabilities, and um, I could see why people would have concerns and trust if we were looking to fully uh, fully outsource the diagnostic process to uh, or the the imaging process to to an AI system entirely. Right. AI would need to go a long way to be able to do that and build trust, but using it as an aid now is where it's being deployed most frequently. And um, and I think uh, when you explain it in that way, then people um, would, many people would become more comfortable with its deployment than, than thinking about it in the alternative. Okay. So one of the things um, I was thinking about as far as the trust factor, I, I personally believe, okay, that the second thing is where it's got to go to be to reach its potential it has to be trusted to the point that it does actually make decisions important decisions um around what to do in given situations Cybersecurity is a great one right uh that's a fast-moving field you know without ai you don't you don't survive cyber today right you have to have it in your in your cybersecurity systems or you just get overwhelmed with well, you there's no human that can keep up with the level of alerts for example that come right now, those systems don't yet make decisions about what network segments to shut down, for example. You're not going to see that. It's not going to make a priority decision about an application that's mission critical and to shut it down, right? Uh, but that's coming. That, that time is definitely coming. So what I think, what I guess the question I have is, does it have to be right 99.99999% of the time? You know, the whole five nines thing. Um when humans are only right about, what, 80, 70% of the time, right? Does it have to be that much better? Yeah, that's the that's the paradox uh, that, that the AI field is often working against today. Right. You no, know? that the expectation is that it needs to be 100% accurate. 100%, when, 100% of the time, right? Yeah, 100% accurate 100% of the time as opposed to um, taking a, a, a tough look at the accuracy in which things are deployed today. Um, there's a uh, there's there's a simple way of being able to capture that. It's hard to collect the data, but we've been working with companies to be able to explore just that. And it's in essence to create a confusion matrix. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with what a confusion matrix mm-hmm. is. I'll, Actually, I'll I'm not. Oh. Uh, okay, uh, in a high level, it would be um, Basically, on the uh, think of it as a two by two, mm-hmm. and at the top you'd have 
uh, is the AI right or wrong? And mm-hmm. uh, and on the left hand side, you've had or excuse me, it is the AI system right or wrong? And is the actual right or wrong? And based, basic, basically creates a couple of different quadrants. I realize I'm not doing as, as great of a job explaining this as I could, but it creates a couple of different quadrants to identify accuracies where it's wrong and where there are false positives and false negatives. Mm-hmm. And you compare that, you know, where humans are applying their judgment towards getting the right system and where AI is applying its judgment gotcha. to the right system. And it becomes an easy way to be able to say, are we using our, our, is our expectation of what is right and wrong for AI much, much higher than what it is for humans? And that that is the beginning of starting the dialogue around what threshold should we sit, we put AI right. to be at. But but most of most of the time, I mean, this is this is playing out right now in the autonomous vehicle space. Um, most of the most of the cars that are around that are driving themselves have, um, uh, you know, a disengage uh, button. Right. Where, yeah. where the expectation is that the hands of the driver are still on the wheel at a point in time. And um, most AI systems that are being built are built with that same sort of metaphor that, yes, they can drive themselves to some extent, but we still have an expectation that an operator is there willing to jump in at any given moment when the system starts to hit that 1% or 2% when it's when it's not operating properly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I find it kind of fascinating that that you know the hallucination issue is is got so many headlines because humans make so many mistakes, and uh, and yet if the machine makes the mistake somehow it's worse. I don't know why. Um, maybe because the people don't understand it. They they work so quickly. They do things that humans are just not capable of doing. Um, you know, even the smartest people can't remember a trillion items. I mean, that's, you know, AI can, right? And categorize it and explore it and cross-reference it, and right? So, um, okay. Well, you the, know, personally... The, the item, no, just just to, to kind of take the lead on, uh, sure. take your lead there. Um, you know, the interesting thing about the hallucinations, if the systems got the hard questions wrong, but all the easy questions right, then I think people would see it as a limitation of the system. But if you go into some of these systems and ask, okay, how yeah. many eyes does an octopus have? You know, you, you'll get eight, eight eyes in, <laughs> in, in some of these systems. Now, okay. my daughter is six. She knows the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have uh, 1,400 on your SATs to be able to get that question right. But But the systems respond in a way that is confidently very wrong and that's what drives the concern it's, Conf- not, it's so confidently wrong like it's, it's so, so confidently wrong on okay. things that are so obvious to anybody who okay. has developed that real world real real world experience yeah and and that that is if 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 you can't trust the ai system to be right With out the of the box on yeah. the easy things yeah. then it requires your attention in these now despite um the fact that there are hallucinations when we work with clients we find ways to control for those hallucinations so you're not dealing with them there there are management techniques and there techno- technical te- techniques as well that allow you to be able to control for some of the things that are outside 
the deviation of, of what uh, what a reasonable response would be. And those are mm-hmm. things that are okay. starting to get momentum so that mm-hmm. you can mitigate the risk of some of these confidently wrong answers being put into into the production environments. The challenge being is that if we don't control for those, then we run the risk of um, automation bias, you know, where automation fatigue, where people, if they're expected, an employee is expected to review the answer of hundreds of AI responses to find the one or two that are wrong. There's a lot of studies that will say that that is a very exhausting job and they will start to tune out a little bit and some of those things will will put through. So there are technical techniques that are being deployed to be able to start to manage against some of those hallucinations. Yeah, it's interesting because it's just a new pro. It's a new version of the same problem that people have today, which AI is supposed to solve for. And I think of cybersecurity, where with alert fatigue, right? So if your job becomes not looking at alerts but looking at the AI output of alert analysis, and it's the same number of things you have to review, then you haven't changed the dynamic very much at that point, right? So. Um, Okay. Uh, one of the other questions I've had, are you familiar with Asimov's Four Laws of Robotics? No. Oh, are you an Asimov? Have you read Asimov? Uh, I've read the Foundation series. Yeah. Um, okay. So the, 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 the Asimov started off uh, in his robotics books with this idea that, uh, and we saw this in Will um, Smith's movie. Um, I can't think of it offhand. But uh, where, you know, there was three laws and now there's four. But a robot cannot injure a human or through an action allow a human to to come to harm. Uh, So that's the first one. Second one, robot must obey the orders given to it by a human, except where it violates the first one, the first law. And the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law, right? And then uh, I guess Asimov later added um, a fourth law, I'm reading, obviously, uh, that states a robot may not harm humanity. So the bigger questions around does what would, you know, Skynet, right? Are we going to, is, is AI going to launch nukes? Because it's the most efficient way to solve a political problem, for example, right? Which is some of the fear today. Um, or by inaction, allow humanity to come to harm. So the, the much bigger picture there. But I wonder, you know, uh, to going back obviously to the trust question is, if you could institute such uh, inalterable guardrails into an AI system, um, would that then free up the technology to really uh, achieve what is possible? Or do you kind of follow me, where the guide the the guardrails are so strong and so embedded into these systems that allows them it frees them up to be reach their potential i guess would be a, a way to think of that so yeah alan i think that's the that's the hope for the technology community right now is that is that they can start to put in systems that uh that have principles and policies that sit at the meta level in mm-hmm. these ai systems and that are not patchwork solutions that happen at the end of the process like what we see yeah. much today. Um, We know that there's alternative approaches, you know, like constitutional AI, where you give the AI a constitution in which it needs to follow. And before it gives any answer, it compares it on whether or not it's fulfilling the guardrails that are separate in its constitution. So that's that's a thing called constitutional AI. But how it goes about doing that, 
is quite challenging because these systems at this point, to the best that we can understand them today, don't really understand what they're coming up with. So the, the hope right. is- Yeah, they're not sentient. They just yeah. aren't. They're yeah. just not sentient. And, and, and they don't have, uh, it, it appears that they don't have a real understanding of our, of our real world and a model of the world. Uh, my, my hope is that, and my understanding of where a lot of innovation is going is that um, the next wave, hopefully the next wave of artificial intelligence combines some of that symbolic understanding and real world understanding that was the AI that was very big in the 90s and the 80s with expert systems. They combine mm -hmm. that type of system and reasoning capability with these large language models, machine learning and deep learning based systems. Um, so, so the hope is that the technology community will continue to work on that and prioritize that. Um, I think there is support that is garnering for technology companies to continue down that road based on regulatory discussions that are happening, at least in the U.S., in D.C., behind closed doors uh, over the course mm -hmm. of the last couple of weeks and pressure uh, and monitoring governance that um, that they're getting from uh, from the EU. Uh, regulation will help. And, um, you know, the regulation in a lot of ways is going to need to be principles based as opposed to very prescriptive uh, in the way prescript, that we've been yeah. in the past. Right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I know the tech companies are calling for the regulation. And and if you think about it from a business perspective, it actually makes sense uh, where it frees them from having this patchwork problem. Right. Where if everybody plays by the same set of rules, then we can focus on the tech and not, you know, building our own little fiefdom around our technology being more trustworthy than your technology. And, you know, uh, maybe that's a marketing thing, but boy, that's a lot of work, right? But in the interim, before, I mean, let's hope that regulation will get solidified uh, over the course of you know, the, the remainder of the existing administration or maybe in the next administration. Mm -hmm. um, it's difficult to get that through. It'll take a while. It'll take a while. Yeah. Um, but well, because the tech is evolving so quickly, too. So you can't regulate something that's in motion. I you need maybe. to put a principles-based approach yeah, to, or, to, be yeah. a, to be able to create guardrails. But what we are finding is that many organizations are imposing their own regulations. This is the the part of their policies. They're, they're setting principles and policies for how they're going to use artificial intelligence, and they're holding themselves accountable as if they were being held accountable by a third party. Um, this is not just to build confidence across their organization and their employee base, but they make those public because... Um, they believe that consumers are going to start asking those difficult mm -hmm. questions as well. Yep. And without getting into any names, we've already seen a couple of instances where technology providers or other companies have changed their terms of data use uh, to be able to you know, leverage it, to be able to build better and more powerful AI systems. And uh, there was quite a revolt uh, online about some of those companies. So so I think that mm. the oh, trend yeah. is... Yeah, we're, sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, the no. trend is that... If regulation is not going to come from our regulators, from our policymakers, we need to be responsive to the fact that consumers are going to demand us to use right. AI in a responsible way. And they're going to require us to, uh, hopefully, more consumers will require companies to disclose where and how they're using AI and what data they're collecting from users as they start to build their AI systems. Right. Yeah, I saw today, getting ready for the call, where Google is introduced, uh, is, is planning to introduce BARD, I think it's BARD. Uh, into their ecosystem. And, you know, they already know everything about me. Do I really want their AI knowing that much more? And, and my first reaction was, I don't want part of that. 
I don't want to be part of that. I mean, I'm a Google guy. Remember, I used to be a Windows guy, and I'm a Google guy. And, you know, I rely on their ecosystem to run my business, and I don't need them knowing more about me than they already do because I don't really trust them. Because why should I, right? You know, and so uh, that's kind of the level of um, th- that's where, you know, that's that's where these technologies are going. So, I mean, I know about this stuff. I do podcasts about AI, and I'm, I have no idea what the implications of that are. If Google decides to use my data in a way that that I don't agree with, and then what do I do about? It? What am I going to do? Sue Google? I got you know I got I got to make a living, or you know, and that's and I think that's the, that's also part of the the fear factor is what can I what am I going to do about it if I get kind of screwed over by well, AI? I, the answer I, is probably not much, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, I won't talk about any companies. Uh, no, no, that's uh, fine. Directly, I'll, but I'll do, I'll do that. I can yeah, I'll do it. Uh, th- thank you, Alan. You do it for me. Um, yeah. But, but you know, not not any one company specifically, but uh, social media and advertising. Yeah. This is the business. This is already happening. Right. So, well, data privacy is what right, the big issue. So. Data privacy is a big issue. The the interesting thing is when you ask uh, different generations how they. Uh, you know, how they respond to data being used, you know, there are differences on a generational basis towards what people have uh, from an expect, from a privacy expectation perspective. And and an acceptance level. That's right. right. Yeah, that's right. Not to condone that in any way. I'm just saying it's a fascinated generations. And it's probably because uh, you and I grew up in a generation where there weren't Mm -hmm. cameras in every room in the house. And, you know, not everything that we did was recorded. Uh, yeah. That is unlike the children that are growing up today. So, right. um, yeah, I, I mean, I I, uh, I agree that uh, that disclosure of what data uh, is being collected and how that is being used is is one of those things that is very important to be able to build trust. Back to that point about transparency yeah. and having yep. the yep. right to be able to use that data. And uh, at EY, one of our principles for how we deploy AI as part of our broad EY.AI program is uh, is around data rights. That is a principle. We evaluate everything that we do with, do we have the rights to be able to be using this data in the, in the model that we build? And then second, are we being transparent with either our users, our suppliers, or our clients in how we're using uh, AI for those purposes? So we we created a set of seven principles that we use to be able to be our backstop for evaluating risk for anything that we do in the AI space. And we're starting to see more companies do that. Yeah. And maybe, maybe this idea of redress needs to be part of the conversation or become part of the conversation. Maybe it already is right. I, I'm not steeped in this, in the conversation every day, but uh, for example, the right to be forgotten that came out with the GDPR and the EU. Right. Um, uh, because that wasn't something I thought about before just talking to you about this, but this idea that what am I going to do about it? Right. I'm just going to get screwed now by a machine, you know, and it's just, you know, there's a lot of that out there right now. There's a lot of mistrust in institutions because in a lot of ways they have not kept up with the changes and have not done a good job of, of you know, regulating tech, for example. Right. Um, and whether or not those fears are justified uh, by the data is irrelevant. Right. Um it doesn't matter what I say, okay? What matters is what you hear me saying. 
that's what matters. And just because I think I made a good argument, just think because I believe I'm, I'm using good data, just because I believe if you don't, then what I say falls on deaf ear. Right. And so you have to bridge that gap in order to have effective communication where both parties can come to an agreement, for example, about a course of action. Right. And so maybe this idea of bringing in redress and giving people an avenue for saying, look, uh, the AI got this wrong. I, you know, what can we do about this? As opposed to just calling customer service and having them say, uh, I don't know. Right. Right. I don't know who, what to do with this question because you know what I mean? Is yeah. you go ahead and jump in there. We, I guess maybe we'll, we'll end on that. We're kind of on the 45 minute mark, but uh, do you think, first of all, that is a good idea and is it happening? And just kind of give me your two cents on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a topic that is being discussed about in the regulatory circles um, of uh, redress, uh, the right to be forgotten. And it's also about transparency of what data we're collecting from you, what data we have on you for you to be able to peer into the organization's data record for you and see what mm-hmm. have they collected. These are all themes that are talked about from a data privacy perspective. And it's clear if we don't have strong data privacy rules, then it's going to be very difficult to be able to put in place the right sorts of regulation around AI. But Alan, to your to the points that you're raising, um, the one of the positives is is because AI has been so democratized, now we're having the conversation about data. When we engage with our clients, that's almost where the conversation goes first. What data do we have rights to it? Do we have access to it? Is it the right quality? Is it biased? We, we go through a lot with our clients to evaluate the bias, the fairness of the of the data that's going into some of these models to make sure they're not having outcomes that uh, that perpetuate that bias. So AI is shining a light on the data challenges that we have across all industries today. Some of those are the rights to use the data. And, and I think if there is regulation in the future without addressing the data challenges, then it will only go so far. It won't really address some of the core things that we're talking about here today. Right. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, Dan, uh, thank you. I, I do appreciate all your time. Thank you very much, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and check out our other shows. You can find Inside DT on all the major hosting platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Google. Talk to you soon. Bye.